Hi and welcome to the Journalism Salute. I'm Mark Simon. In each episode, we'll talk to or about an interesting person or organization related to journalism. The intent is to show that journalists are not the enemy of the people. Thank you for listening. Our guest today is Diana Cruzman. Diana is currently the Midwest Reporting Fellow for Grist, which is a nonprofit independent media organization that covers climate solutions. But Diana has done a lot more than that. She also writes regularly about religion and urbanism, which includes some international reporting. I like her Twitter bio, which asks the question, journalists or just plain nosy? Hi, Diana. Thanks for joining us. Hi, thanks for having me. And thanks for liking that question. I thought it was cute, but no one's ever mentioned it to me before. There you go. I want to start with your origin story. And I always ask reporters this one. You kind of get into it on your website a little bit, but can you explain how your upbringing led to your journalistic interests? Yeah, for sure. So my family um, immigrated from Russia, from St. Petersburg in 1994. So I was born a few years after that, raised in California, but growing up, I always heard my parents and my grandparents talking about the lack of access to information that they had um, when they were living in Russia. So, you know, my grandma would even tell me stories about trying to tune the radio to get uh, foreign radio stations and just having to get through all this static because they, because of the blockers that the government had. So they would try to get information and they, they always knew that they weren't getting everything, you know, including about major environmental disasters like Chernobyl. So that always stuck with me and I wanted to become a journalist so that I can use this privilege that I have to access information so readily, not just because we're in the US, but because of the internet and there's just so much more access to information right now. And I thought that I want to bring this to people and help people interpret the information that's out there. A lot of things that we would take for granted here are not necessarily easily accessible in Russia. Was anyone in your family in the realm of storytelling? You know, not officially, but my grandma and my mom both love to tell stories and they will uh, trap you in a, a two-hour long conversation. So I think that maybe that uh, subliminally influenced me. <laughs> so your journalism path goes USC to NYU to freelancing to Grist with a fellowship with the Religion News Service. And along the way, you'd held every possible position that I could find <laughs> at the Daily Trojan. You also had six internships. I'm not going to ask you to detail every one of these, but maybe you could pick two positions that you've had at college and with the internships and maybe explain the most valuable lessons or experiences that you had at each. Yeah, definitely. I think that a really valuable experience that I had actually, thank you for bringing it up, was the Daily Trojan, my college newspaper. You know, I think that a lot of journalists have this experience that their college newspaper just kind of throws them into reporting and that they just have to balance being a student and being a reporter. And that kind of trial by fire um, really teaches you a lot. So I think that I will always be grateful for that experience, as well as for, you know, my colleagues and, and classmates uh, who worked on that paper with me. USC went through a number of scandals during my time there and the time afterwards. So we had a lot to report on and it really taught me the basics of. And then the other really valuable experience I had was at the Oregonian 
where I was an intern in the summer after I graduated college. And that was my first experience being a full-time local reporter, although I had done local reporting when I was in Los Angeles as well. But it really made me respect so much the work that local journalists do because I was most of the time the only person covering a specific issue or that something that wouldn't have been talked about or brought to light if I hadn't decided to pursue it. And that really gave me a sense of responsibility and this drive to, in everything I do, even if it's not specifically local journalism, to really teach people something they might not already know about their community, whether that's a city or the world around them, the global community. Uh, and that really drives my my perspective on everything from international reporting to the work that I do as an environmental journalist as well. Uh, so in 2019, you won an award from the Forest History Society. If you've listened to the last two episodes of our podcast, there's a coincidence here. You won the Collier Award, not to be confused with the Collier Prize. You wrote a piece for Earther, which was a nature publication about sacred groves in India that are being destroyed over time. And this is just to give a sense of the kind of environmental reporting that you do. Over the last 60 years, the number of sacred groves in Kerala has shrunk from more than 10,000 to less than 1,500, according to the state's forestry department. This is in India. But as awareness of Kavu's importance to medicine, air quality, and cultural traditions rise, scientists and activists are racing to preserve what's left. You wrote a very comprehensive piece on this subject. And just to start broad here, what was the research and reporting for that piece like? Yeah, I started this piece actually as a senior in college with a religion reporting class. So I was very lucky to be able to take this class, which funded a trip to India, where we got to just be thrown into what it's like to be a foreign correspondent reporting on religion. And so I actually had to do three pieces from that trip. And this was the one that I was most proud of. I started reporting on this and researching this um, just because I was interested in environment in India as well as religion. And so I was looking through religion and environment stories and actually um, saw some other pieces that had been written about uh, sacred groves. And I thought I would love to do a deeper dive into this and look at what do these mean for people who either worship in them or, or live nearby or are their caretakers um, or scientists who uh, really see the biodiversity in these groves and the value of them. So I knew when I went to India that I wanted to get those perspectives uh, from multiple people. And so apart from doing the pre-reporting, which I had to do before the trip, reading up on the ecological value and you know what these groves really mean scientifically. I also then when I got to India, reached out to people who lived near these groves. For example, I found one that was being managed by a family and they had a little temple in the grove and they were the caretakers and they, their family had been for hundreds of years. So I was able to find them and, and reach out on WhatsApp, actually. WhatsApp is a great, great reporting tool. And then went to visit them and, and spoke with one of the family members about what the grove uh, means to her. And so I was able to incorporate that into the final story as well. What obstacles did you run into along the way? I think the biggest obstacle was just 
lack of familiarity. And that's an issue for every reporter that kind of parachutes into a country and writes about something that they're not familiar with. And this is something that I I generally try to avoid in my reporting. I like to be more deeply embedded in a community, uh, spend more time there, be accountable to the community in some way. So, you know, if I go to a place, um, I like to come back afterwards and do more stories or somehow be connected to it. But this was obviously a one-off for now, at least, although I'd love to go back to India. So I really had to just grapple with what it means that I'm not from here. I don't have a lot of background knowledge of the area of the country or of um, the religions uh, in India, and particularly for the groves, Hinduism. So I had to just learn as much as I could beforehand and talk to as many people as possible and just always have that in the back of my mind that I, I don't know everything. Did the WhatsApp relationship help as opposed to the idea if you had gone there as a, I imagine you were a 2021 year old young American female student at the time, I I presume that that being able to establish, hey, I know what I'm talking about here on WhatsApp, did that help with with what I guess as opposed to what I I just kind of articulated? Yeah, it did. Although I actually didn't end up, I think, even reaching out over WhatsApp until I was already in India. It was more just you know, I, I got there and, and before I went, I was like, I can at least talk to you and see if you're available today. But I think it did help also with just staying in touch because I was able to send the article afterwards to the some of the people I talked to and at least know that they saw it and that they had some kind of reaction. So I'm not just, you know, writing into the void and then never talking to the people that I spoke with again. So the research process for something like this, you alluded to it briefly, but I was wondering if you could go a little bit more in depth. And I'll just use as an example, someone like myself, when I interview an athlete, I don't like to parachute in, as you said, and I will immerse myself in video of them. I will immerse myself in reading other articles about them. How much did you do for, for something like this? Yeah, I think for this story, Obviously, since I had been in a class for several months before that, I think I I definitely spent, you know, at least several months of kind of low-key work just reading about, you know, what had previously been written about sacred groves in India. So obviously I said that I found this out by just seeing that others had reported on it. So I have to give credit, for example, to Mangabe, which had covered this before I did. And I read their article, I read others. And I also like to read scientific papers. So this comes into a lot of my environmental work. I um, do this a lot for GRIST, but I read, for example, papers on the biodiversity of the groves and then was able to reach out to the authors and interview them once I was in India as well. I think at the time I did much more of that reading beforehand than interviewing because this was pre-COVID, I think. All of us didn't prefer doing phone interviews to in-person. Now I do almost all of my reporting virtually. And even before I go on a reporting trip, I will usually do phone interviews and just establish, you know, some of the basic questions so that when I go, I can get more of an in-depth interview. Now, you mentioned remote, but you've also reported from Kyrgyzstan about a small town that had powered the Soviet Union's nuclear program now it's dealing with climate change, health issues, and there are some uh, really huge problems. Explain what, what went into that piece. 
Yeah, so that was an even longer process of researching and planning because I was initially going to go to Kyrgyzstan for my master's thesis at NYU, but COVID happened. I did not get to go until last summer when I got a few grants from the Overseas Press Club Foundation and the International Women's Media Foundation, which I'm super grateful for. Have to give them a shout out and was able to also safely travel at that point you know, with vaccination and, and masking. So I was able to go and, and do in-person reporting in this town, which was extremely important for me because those residents weren't necessarily very accessible beforehand virtually. So what I was able to do virtually beforehand was just similarly to my India story, read up on what articles had been writ written about this issue in the past. And so that's where I saw that, you know, it had been covered by several prominent outlets, including Reuters, but I felt like a deeper dive was necessary. And also that no one had really talked about the climate change angle very much. So I wanted to dive into that issue and how it's going to be impacting these um, stores of radioactive waste. So I read stories, I looked at mainly NGO reports. There were a lot of NGOs that had uh, done work in this town before. And so I read through those and then I just reached out to a few people to ask about meeting once I was already in Kyrgyzstan. So I was able to do that work beforehand and then, and then go travel. Okay. So that's two countries that you've mentioned, uh, India and Kyrgyzstan. I know that you've been to others as well. Have you run into any challenges traveling? Do you mean since COVID or just no, in general? Well, uh, on these stories, like trying to get through these. You know, I, I can't really say that there's been anything extremely challenging. I think in both countries, you just kind of have to understand that there's a different standard of travel than you might have in the U.S. So as long as you're prepared for that, it's not a problem. You know, I, yeah, I had to drive through Kyrgyzstan for like 13 hours in a car with no air conditioning shared with like four other people but like that's not that weird <laughs> when you're there and you're like that's how everybody travels you know so yeah I think the main thing is just budgeting enough time to get where you need to go and not necessarily being too picky about you know <laughs> comfort and then once you establish those two things I didn't have many issues all right well a lot of people would probably say that the things that you said are, are hindrances and you just I'm impressed <laughs> that, that you just kind of you know, brush them off like they're not. And that's that's certainly very, as I said, that's certainly impressive. I do want to talk about your work for uh, Grist and just one headline example. Cities are investing billions in new sewage systems that are already obsolete. Another, I'd say you're an expert of what we would call things put on streets. States that have uh, found solutions to road salt imperiling the waterways. And more recently, Ohio residents fighting to get radioactive oil and gas waste off of their roads. So that's some interesting story ideas. I'm curious about the management of your beat at Grist and how stories kind of come about. Yeah, thank you. And I love that description of things put on streets. <laughs> Maybe that will be my, my beat. But 
Yeah, I think that the way I manage this beat really stems from my interest. It's such a broad beat. So I'm the Midwest fellow, and that means that I broadly cover environmental issues around the Midwest, but that could mean everything from, you know, the transition to renewable energy, to climate change impacts, to a lot of what I'm interested in covering, which is toxins and also transportation and urbanism. And so I am already interested in those topics. And so I think that I kind of look out for those stories, which might be why I end up doing more of them. But when it comes to all of these stories, you know, they came from different avenues. For example, I had heard about this issue of combined sewage overflows by being in a seminar with other journalists where we talked about the Great Lakes region and just overall problems. And I thought that's something that I feel like needs to be talked about more is climate change impacts on sewage infrastructure and how, you know, this is going to be a bigger and bigger issue the further we go. And then for the oil and gas waste, I learned about this as a national issue. There was a really great investigation from Rolling Stone two years ago that talked about that really introduced people to the fact that oil and gas waste is radioactive. I had no idea about that before I read this story. So when I started thinking, I wonder how people are dealing with that here in Ohio, where I'm based, I'm, I'm in Columbus. And so that's how that story came about. So I think I like to take these big issues and localize them or take local issues and see how they're nationally relevant, which is what Grist is all about. So I guess, can you explain how the, the process works there? Is it like you pitch to them or do they, uh, do they assign to you? So I work with my editor and I pitch um, essentially all my own stories. Although every once in a while, you know, they'll say, oh, there's something here that might be interesting for you to look at or suggest something. But really it's very self-driven. And I, I love that about working there because I'm, I'm really able to, uh, yeah, make the beat my own, I guess, in a sense. And I think that there's just so many stories to tell around the Midwest um, and around environmental issues that I would never run out, even if I tried. So there's always more. Well, uh, give, for those that aren't familiar with Gris, give more of a sense of what it is. Yeah, so Gris is a nonprofit uh, news magazine, online news magazine, and like you mentioned in your introduction, they're focused on climate justice and solutions. So those are kind of the three overarching aspects that make something a Grist story. And so we try to connect everything to that. And Grist is, is doing really great work in the environmental reporting space, trying to really make these stories accessible to a general audience. So you don't have to be, you know, a scientist to read a Grist story, or you don't even have to specifically only be interested in the environment to read a Grist story. It's really for a general readership, which is what I love about it too. I learned that as when I started to read uh, three of the stories on the site. So I know this from having looked at your website and you've referenced it several times here. You mentioned a Rolling Stone piece. You've mentioned scientific papers. You read a lot, don't you? I do. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yep. I was, I was going to yeah. say, uh, now, within the audience for this podcast is largely, I would hope, aspiring journalists or journalism enthusiasts. What are, are there some good hidden sources that you recommend that you particularly enjoy or find valuable? Yeah, I, I think that's a good question. I 
read very widely. I get a lot of newspaper of newsletters. So I think it it's hard to say that they're necessarily hidden sources, but there's a few sites that I particularly like. And I this kind of connects with um I know you were going to ask me this later, but site that I really admire, for example, is the third pole, which does reporting on environmental issues in South Asia, Central Asia, and just generally parts of the world that Americans might not be super familiar with. So I really love reading them and think that for environmental issues, particularly international, that's a great site. I also cannot understate the value of reading local media. So whether that's international, for example, before going to Kyrgyzstan, read everything I could about the issue of the radioactive waste in the local media there. And because I speak Russian, I was able to do that. And it it's really just so valuable to see what people are talking about and how this issue is perceived in the place that you're writing about. And local journalists often do so much great work that then you also might end up referencing the work that they do or even collaborating. And same thing with Midwest. I read local sources. So obviously I read my local newspaper, the Columbus Dispatch. and as well as some newsletters that deliver kind of environmental and energy news from different local papers around the Midwest. So I highly recommend subscribing um, to Midwest Energy News if that's something that interests you. Are there stories that are underreported when it comes to the, the subjects that you cover? Yeah, I mean, I think regionally, a lot of the regions I'm interested in are extremely undercovered. So the whole reason Grist created this position was because so much of environmental reporting in the U.S. is focused on the coasts. And I think that that's changing. But I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that, obviously, as with political reporting and, and everything else, that's where the journalists are. But on top of that, that is where people who are perceived to care about environmental issues are located. And so that's why this position is so new. And it is really about showing that no, there's not only so many environmental stories in the Midwest, but there's so many people here who care about the environment and the way that it impacts them. So that's something that I want to highlight in my reporting. And then obviously, same with Central Asia. Um, most Americans couldn't place Kyrgyzstan on a map. And, you know, it's, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's understandable because, you know, we are so preoccupied with our own little uh, bubble. but. So much of what we do impacts other countries that I think I really want to just highlight how other countries and particularly those that we might not know that much about um, are dealing with issues like climate change. And if I even teach one person about where Kyrgyzstan is or why <laughs> it matters, like I'll be happy. All of the articles that we're referencing are, are listed in the show notes. We'll have plenty of links there. One pattern I noticed in your writing, in terms of the way that you write your pieces, you, you like what I would call immediate humanization, maybe the right term for it. You write about a 71-year-old retired engineer, Joe Mozajowski, who has spent, who has watched a decade-long boom in oil and gas drilling unfold in the region surrounding his 50-acre farm in Northeast Ohio. He once spent his days designing stormwater infrastructure, and he was surprised to learn that a byproduct of all this uh, drilling was being spread on roads and streets near his property, which includes a football-sized pond that he swims in. I'm curious about the, the, 
the term, I guess, that I used, immediate humanization and how you incorporate it into the articles that you write. Yeah, it's great that you mentioned that actually, because my editor just the other week when I was doing my my mid <laughs> fellowship check in said that exact same thing. She didn't use the words, uh, you know, immediate humanization, but she was like, you like to start your stories with a person. And that is very true. And I had never really thought about that before you mentioned it, but because it's not like an intentional tactic or strategy that I necessarily have. I think it's just that I think reporting on topics like the environment can be so abstract sometimes and so scientific. And I, what really makes me connect with a story or with an issue is knowing how it affects a person. And so I, I gravitate towards stories like that. And particularly when I'm interviewing someone and they tell me a really compelling story about themselves. So, you know, not, you don't always get that when reporting. And if I don't get that in my interviews, I don't try to like shoehorn it in. A lot of the time I'll find that someone has a really convincing or really interesting personal story. And that's why I like to start with that. I think it helps me picture the issue and, and frame the issue before I get into the larger aspect of it. And the details too, the football size pond, things of that nature, are certainly very important. You also cover religion, and I feel like we could do a whole episode about that, but we'll just do a chunk of this interview about that. I don't, I don't want to sure change it. I've seen a recent story on Christian cannabis. You've also done a number of stories, again, kind of narrowing your beat. The Chaplin beat, I suppose, is one that you have that you have some ownership over. Every so often you combine the religious reporting with the environmental reporting. Last November, you wrote a piece about how indigenous and faith leaders urged Procter and Gamble to end the logging of old growth forests. What went into that one? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think it's so funny that I ended up on the religion beat or even the chaplain beat, as you say, because it's true. I was really interested in chaplains since I never set out to be a religion reporter, but I took that religion reporting class in college that I mentioned. And then ever since then, that's been one of those topics that I felt is extremely underreported. And I've just been fascinated by the way religion interacts with and affects secular society in particular, which is one reason why I did so many stories about chaplains. I think that that's fascinating. And then also with the Procter & Gamble story, that's another example of how, in this case, faith leaders from around Cincinnati were pressuring Procter & Gamble to act against the logging of old growth forests in Canada that have been found to have been going into some of their products, according to environmental groups that are working on this. And they're based in Cincinnati. So to me, what was really fascinating was just that faith leaders have this sort of gravitas that is different from, for example, an environmental group calling for Procter & Gamble to um, look into their supply chain. And I just wanted to know why, and also from the other side, why these leaders felt it was important to speak out and to use their platform. And that's happening more and more. There's more faith communities that are talking about environment and climate. And so it's something that I want to continue to cover as a reporter. I was just going to ask, is there another type of reporting related to religion that you would want to do? Yeah, I mean, I'm working on some some great stories right now at, at Grist about this. I'm not going <laughs> to spoil that too much. But even, for example, the the story about sacred groves, 
that's an example of another type of religion story that I'm really interested in, which is how does climate change or you know, deforestation or otherwise human impacts on the environment impact religious practice? And so in this case, you know, the practice of worshiping in sacred groves that is disappearing. And there's a, another really great story about this um, happening in Ethiopia as well. Ethiopia also has sacred groves. There's a great story from one of my uh, co-fellows in a religion and environment fellowship I'm in, in Fred Banson, and he did this really cool reporting project in Ethiopia. So I, I think that that's going to continue to be a major developing story as climate change impacts get worse and worse, is how is this impacting people's ability to worship um, and to exercise their spirituality? This question wasn't in the script, but I was going to, I wanted to throw it in. So you, you do a lot of, lot of, lot of very serious stories in nature. I did want to touch on the fact that occasionally you do delve into the less serious. I found a piece that you did a travel piece uh, where you sat on a train for 35 hours. That mm -hmm. was, I think, San Francisco to Colorado or Colorado to San Francisco. I, I guess, is there, are there fun types of pieces that you like doing too? Yeah, uh, the train was great. And it was funny because I didn't, do that for the piece. I was already going to be traveling on a train, which tells you a lot about uh, my travel style. Then an editor just suggested I do that piece. And I was like, sure. But yeah, fun pieces. I mean, my master's thesis, which I told you I had to switch the topic because of COVID, I ended up doing my thesis on alternative history YouTubers, which is a whole like subculture of people who have alternate theories about the arc of human history. And so I was able to actually report from Egypt on a tour that some of these YouTubers were doing of the pyramids and other Egyptian sites and kind of show their perspective and then also show why archeologists are really upset about this trend and why there are some dangerous aspects of everything from the spread of fake news and distrust in institutions to um, some really racist uh, thoughts and principles that underlie some of these theories. So that does end up sounding pretty serious, actually. It, it does. But, but it, actually, there was a point I wanted to add. I'm sorry to interrupt. There was a point I wanted to ask about specifically about that. The thing that was interesting to me in reading that piece was you gave the, the alternative historians, you gave them, I think, a little bit more rope than than I guess the average person um, would have done. And I'm guessing that in the process of trying to write and figure out how much rope do you want to give them, that must have been particularly interesting. What were, was there any sort of challenge with that? Yes, it was really difficult, actually, uh, because I very much did not want to contribute to spreading misinformation or any kind of false equivalence. Obviously, that was a huge problem. And part of the, a major part of the reason why we're, where we are today with climate change is because for so long media gave equal weight to people who, scientists who <laughs> were talking about the threat and then just people who didn't believe them. And I did not want to do this, to do that. I did get some flack from archaeologists, including some of the archaeologists I interviewed after the story came out, although other archaeologists I interviewed thought that it was it did a good job but and I, I saw their concerns I think the reason I gave so much space to the alternative view was just that I felt I had to explain what it was um, and why 
people believe these things and what exactly it is that they believe. You know, I think that it is, I could have just said, you know, written it up in a paragraph and then spent the rest of the story going over why that's yep. bad. But I felt that it was really important to give them the space to give their best argument. And then, you know, you present the scientific evidence and, you know, see how that stacks up. And so I, I obviously, like I said, did not want that to turn into false equivocating, but I felt that I presented in the most um, fair way that I could while still preserving that sense of just curiosity and inquiry. Like I want to be a journalist that inquisitive and, and just really wants to understand something very deeply. And I want the reader to understand it too. So they come away from the article feeling like they really get what these people are all about and then why their views are problematic. Okay. There, I have three other questions that I wanted to ask. And this one kind of leads into the, to the next one. You're a young person. You're in your early 20s and you're observing a lot of things going on in the world right now. And you're observing is happening with journalism right now. And I'm curious for the 20-something the person's perspective on where the industry stands and why you so much want to do what you're doing. Yeah, thank you. I actually just am now solidly in my mid-20s. So, um, you know, I, I wish um, I still had the hope of my early 20s because truly when I, I started studying journalism in college, or even when I went into grad school, I feel like still, yeah, I was very optimistic about the industry. And obviously I've, everyone's been hearing for years about how difficult it is and, and how few jobs there are. But I guess I was just passionate enough about it that I thought, you know, it'll work out either way. I will just kind of make my way through the, the brute force, of my interest and my passion. And I think now I have shifted my expectations somewhat in that I see a much, much more viable path forward with something like freelancing um, versus necessarily having a staff job somewhere. And I, I definitely would, would like to have a staff job at some point, but I think in terms of jobs that are available and then my interests, I found a much more viable path forward for specifically writing about the things I'm interested in as a freelancer than I have with necessarily working for a specific outlet. And, you know, obviously I love working for Grist and, and I love this fellowship and would love to work for them in the future someday as well. But I like that, for example, as a freelancer, I could do environmental stories, but then also do religion stories. And then also sometimes do random stories about YouTube subcultures. So, you know, it's like, you still build a beat, but you have more wiggle room and more time to devote to these stories that you are specifically interested in. Sure, and you've written, your pieces have been published in places like the New York Times, Christian Science Monitor, Insider, very, a very impressive base of writing so far. So I try to ask an advice-oriented question at the end. I know that you've gotten a lot of grant support. You've mentioned it multiple times. How should young journalists approach the process of applying for grants? And is there an example you could give of one that worked out for you? Yeah, I cannot recommend applying to grants enough. That's the only way that I have been able to do what I just talked about, which was really work as a freelancer and pursue stories that I'm passionate about. 
I would say that my biggest piece of advice is to just apply. I really did not think that I had the qualifications or the clips or the weight as a journalist to apply to grants until a professor in grad school uh, suggested that I apply and encouraged me and told me that just because I'm technically a student doesn't mean that I am not also a journalist. And that's exactly what I did. And the more grants I got, the more confident I became in applying to them. So I would definitely say apply, apply, apply. And then also just have a great and very deep understanding of what the story is before you apply. And this can be difficult sometimes because that requires you to put in a lot of unpaid labor as a freelancer before you even have a guarantee that you're going to get to do the thing that you want to do. So I was privileged in that I was able to apply to these grants while I was in grad school. So I had, you know, at least stable income and was able to have that institutional support and not just kind of be floundering by myself. But then was able to then do those stories even after I finished grad school. So I would say do as much work as you can uh, before you apply, at least talk to the, or reach out to the main person that you're interested in talking to, to make sure that they actually are available and are interested in talking to you or just have a very clear sense of what the story and the angle is so that you can sell yourself and sell the story most effectively. An important way to fund report to fund reporting for sure. So the last question, the podcast is called the Journalism Salute. I think I know where you're going to go with this, but is there a journalist or journalism organization that you're not affiliated with whose work you admire that you would like to salute for their good work? Yeah, of course. As I mentioned, I really love the work that the Third Pole is doing, and I think that they are a great example of uplifting the voices of local reporters in different countries around the world, um, as well as foreign correspondents who write about these issues, and bringing environmental stories from around the world to an audience that might not otherwise ever read about them. So definitely salute the third poll. And then a journalist also, I really admire the work of Sarah Topol. She's a contributing writer at the New York Times Magazine, and she actually spoke to one of my classes in grad school. So I really love the extremely in-depth work that she does for reporting on everything from Boko Haram in Nigeria to reporting on the Rohingya uh, crisis in Myanmar. So I just really admire her work as a journalist and uh, love reading her stories. And same thing, she brings the world to American readers in a really nuanced way that never feels like she is just parachuting in or that she just, you know, is trying to extract a story. It feels like she really cares about the people she talks to. Very nice. Diana Cruzman, I hope that in a few years that I'm interviewing someone and they say the same about you. That would be great. (laughs) Thank you so much. (laughs) All right. Thank you for taking the time to join us. Best of luck. Thank you. All over the world, democracy is on the knife's edge. If the West had stood up for democracy, Russia would not have been able to put tanks there today. The same tanks and the same troops that are threatening the homes of people I love. And at home, we're fighting for the soul of America. We walked up in here amongst hostile people. There's KKK here, there's skinheads here, there's all kinds of that stuff here. We are not afraid. We are not afraid. Don't miss Democracy in Danger, a podcast that's saving government by the people 
one week at a time. Find us at dindanger.org and wherever you get your audio. Thank you for listening to the Journalism Salute. Please let us know what you think of the show. You can find us on Twitter at JournalismPod, and you can email us at JournalismSalute at gmail.com.